2: This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 535. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We have a story today. Oh man, it isn't fantastic. Tell you what's coming in today's show. Anyways, let's get into it anyway, straight away. First up is The Valkyrie by Maurice Bodas. Then we have... Amy H. Sturgis with her looking back at genre history. That is all coming to sure. show. First up though, first up though, we have the little Patreon announcement there. Hey, we're doing uh, rather well. We had a bit of a, a flurry on this week. We were, last week, we were 411 That's what we were last week. We are now 416. Yes, get up there, lad. As we say, that is a certain little jump up there. Thank you so much to everyone. And a big thank you. So, Julian Hopkins. Julian, thank you so much indeed. That's just amazing. Thank you. Just so special. Honestly, it means a lot. And we have Ed Allen. Ed, there's a bear hug for you, lad. And Will Flood. Will, thank you so much. And Nigel Bamford, big thank you, Nigel, you're a star, honestly. Man, it means a lot. Thank you so much. Sissy Van Dyke, what a name, man. Sissy, that is amazing. Thank you so much indeed. And Anne, and Anne, guess what? I'm stuck with your surname. Anne has been kind of supporting Starships so far for man. And I've seen Anne's name and... And, uh, Semenuk, and you've got me stumped there with that one, but honestly, listen, thank you so much indeed. It's our march to 500, and sometimes it looks good, and then you think, oh, we're not going to get there, and then sometimes we just, we're away, and certainly this week, we've, you know, we've had some folks come over, so please, if you can, a couple of dollars, that's all it takes, man, just stand up. Or, oh, there is one last person to say hello to and thank you. Mr. John Douglas. (laughs) Guess who John is? John's me boss. Now, if I can get management to donate... (laughs) I have badgered John for... John's been listening for ages as well, to be quite honest. And I've badgered him and badgered Every time he comes into the office, the control room, I've said, John, John, come on. Come on. You know, the wages he's on. He eventually did. He eventually stumped up there. So, John... (laughs) Thank you, lad. Yes, you're a star. Thank you so much. So there, look it. If I can get management to come over and donate, it's a worthy cause. You know what I mean? We just keep the show going and that would be fantastic. And I will march to 500. So that is it. Please support me. So the main fiction, like I say, is The Valkyrie by Maurice Brodas originally published in War Stories. A community organiser and teacher, his work has a PDA in Lightspeed, Weird Tales, Apex Magazine, Asimov's, Cemetery Dance, Black Static, and many, many more. Some of his stories have been collected in The Voices of Martyrs. He wrote the urban fantasy trilogy The Knights of Breton Court. He co-authored the play Finding Home, Indiana at 200. His novellas include Buffalo Soldier, I Can Transform You, Orgy of Souls and a host of others. He is the co-editor of Dark Faith, Dark Faith, in- Invocations, Streets of Shadows and the People of Colour Destroy Horror. Maurice has got some in there, mind you. Oh, some guns there, Maurice. Thank you, sir. This story is narrated by Stephanie Morris. Stephanie Morris is a professional fangirl by day and the lone librarian assistant staffing a college circulation desk at night. She has narrated stories for all four of the escape artists as well as Starship Sova and has guest blogs on subjects ranging from book recommendations to zombie turkeys and performed Shakespeare in a handful, let's get this, of weird churches. That's just a great ending to a bio, that step. Oh, that's amazing. So, the Starship Suva is very proud to present...
0: The Valkyrie by Maurice Broaddus 2nd Lieutenant Marcia Branson leapt into the dark abyss and descended into a purgatory of red tracer fire. The night sky held her close as the air whipped about them, reducing her whirl to the deadening screech of white noise. She plummeted toward the earth, not knowing where they might land, in trees, in water, into the mist of a heathen patrol. All she knew for sure was that they would land somewhere in Holland. She prayed that she would be at least close to her drop zone. She was deployed in the service of the Order and had a duty to perform. THE CHURCH WAS MOTHER. THE CHURCH WAS FATHER. A grassy knoll rushed toward her and she braced for the jolt of impact without looking down. The rush of the ground toward them, despite their training, could still send a jolt of panic through a soldier. Besides, she enjoyed holding onto the peace of the horizon for as long as possible to steady her. Her knees slightly bent, she dropped her chin to her chest and tensed her neck muscles. The earth slammed into her, her body twisting and bending in automatic reaction, giving in to the crash, a ragdoll carried by the current of momentum. She slid down an embankment before coming to a halt. Slogging through three inches of pooled water, she knew what she'd find when she checked her gear. Nothing would work right. Her flight suit was only designed for controlled descents. The best tech went to the evangelical deployments. The rest of the church's military was left with equipment full of glitches, if not flat-out defective. With so much theaters of operation, the troops' equipment had been rushed into production and not battle-tested, like many of her fellow soldiers. Her hard landing smashed the communication relay, and her leg bundle— full of extra ammo and rations, was nowhere to be found. At least the familiar weight of her Striker XM9 pulse rifle, though it was a generation out of date, comforted her like the embrace of an old friend. Above her, tracer fire continued to crisscross the night sky, the light of exploding flack almost reminding her of fireworks. Almost. The proximity alert lit up on her rifle. Fishes! Branson challenged, "'Loaves.' A familiar voice responded softly from the shadows. "'You're calm, Link, down, too? Where the hell are we?' No one was happier to see Prefect Sergeant E. Kenneth Dooley than Branson. Short, quick-thinking, and ugly as a catfight, when Dooley first joined the ranks, the older soldiers took to calling him Doo-Doo. That lasted until the first time they saw him in a firefight. He stalked a battlefield with defiant determination, daring the heathens to hit him. "'I'd guess five to seven miles from a DZ, judging from the firing,' Branson said. She didn't bother to check the digital telemetry or maps in her helmet subsystem. Half the time she found the continual stream of information in Dogma Sermon's more hindrance than help. "'Which way do we head?' Dooley asked. "'Where else? Toward the firing?' They both knew it was a bad drop. The NAVCOM signal was down across the board, so they set about cobbling together their unit the old-fashioned way. They spread out, slow and tentative. When unfamiliar soldiers joined them and saw Branson, many replacement soldiers filled their ranks for this mission, a sense of relief lit up their faces. It was as if they sensed they were in good, experienced hands. Other officers complained that she was friendlier with the enlisted men rather than she was with them. She didn't care. The front line was where she belonged. She even volunteered for patrols. The uniform meant something to her. Branson watched with weary eyes as this latest batch of green recruits checked through their rucksacks and readied their weapons. She waited for them to regroup before taking final stock of what the service had her working with this time. "'When are we going to see some action?' asked a square-jawed, broad-shouldered glamour boy with curly blonde locks. He still stank of military school. "'Who are you?' duly asked, with the casual contempt mixed with pity of a boxer who wholly outclassed his opponent. He had little patience with replacement soldiers. The names duly bit into a well-chewed cigar stump and swished it about in his mouth, until it found its comfortable crook. Stow it, I don't want to learn your name. Learning your name is the first step to getting attached and I sure as hell ain't getting attached no replacement. From here out, you're Goldie. What'll they call you, ma'am? Goldie turned to Branson. Second Lieutenant Branson, you want to try to call me something else? Her stare made him turn away. Goldie spied the ink along Dooley's arm. What's the tattoo? Duly pulled up his sleeve to fully reveal the image of a woman astride a white horse on his arm. Long, blonde hair covered by a silver helmet, with blazing blue eyes peering from underneath it, she carried both a spear and shield. A Valkyrie? What's a Valkyrie? Goldie asked. Collectors of the favored dead. They chose the slain heroes to be taken to Valhalla. If a warrior saw one before battle, he'd die during it. I want the Neals to always see one coming. You got to be careful with that myth talk. You don't want to be seen as a Neal or a sympathizer. A heath. They're Neals if they have no gods. Heaths if they worship the wrong ones. Still, choosers of the slain? Nice. Goldie's voice trailed off. Dooley had turned his back and stalked off to be about his business. Branson pretended to have not noticed the interaction by studying the maps on her viewscreens as Goldie approached her. How'd it go with Dooley? We're Dutch, Goldie said, without any trace of irony. We eat it off swell. Give it time. Newbies have to learn how to slip in between the seams. I get it, ma'am, Goldie said, obviously bored with the lesson. Pack them up, we're moving out, a new voice shouted out. First Lieutenant Gilbert Meshner. "'Mush behind his back. "'Of course he'd been chosen for this mission,' Branson spat. Meshner wandered through their makeshift camp like a distracted tourist. "'A mop of black, greasy hair and dead gray eyes gave his face a grave severity. "'He was little more than a petty dictator "'who used vindictiveness in the guise of discipline. "'Rumor was that when they'd parachuted into Chiapas, Mexico, Anil had charged Meshner. By the time the rest of the men got to him, the two had played kata tag and the nail lay dead at his feet, but otherwise mushed long since developed a reputation for taking long walks away from the action. The men tried to joke it off as Meshner's luck masking his skill, but no one knew what to make of him. We're marching until high ground. Meshner eyed Branson with something approaching scorn. Not a single man stirred. They turned to Branson in a tacit double-check of the orders. "'You heard the man. Let's go, you scroats, Branson echoed. The hills of Holland were supposed to be beautiful. The war had reduced them to green-space ambush sites for the nails and heathens. The church embraced a holistic approach to fulfilling her mission, politics, technology, and the military." The evangelical states of America already ruled their hemisphere, along with parts of Africa and Asia. The United Emirate of Islam controlled the rest of Africa along with Asia. Europe was up for grabs, a self-declared safe haven for atheists and heretics. Not that Branson cared. Nation, religion, tribe, cause. There was always some supposed big idea to fight for, but in the end, all that mattered was that orders were obeyed and the mission carried out. A dense fog crept along the field, and an eerie silence embraced them. Pulse rifle fire left a distinct odor in the air, a mix of ozone and seared flesh, the smell of death. High ground took them the rest of the night and most of the next day to find. Patrols detected heathen troops nearby. The men marched in silence, the only sound filling the air the steady stamp of their boots slogging muddy earth. The waiting was the worst. That was what broke people. The constant state of alert, their minds imagining horrors behind every point of cover. Branson shoved all that aside. The momentary peace gave her a stand to read up on some of her newbies. Goldie held a particular interest. His body was a stew of experimental psychotropics. For all of his country boy persona, he had once been a serial killer— with a penchant for skinning young girls before his conversion. Fortunately, the church left nothing to chance when it came to one's sanctification, even if it had to overwrite existing memories with new ones. Everyone needed redemption from something. Praise be the blood. "'Where's Goldie?' Branson whispered. "'Making out with the toilet?' Dooley thumbed toward some bushes. He shifted his unlit cigar to the other side of his mouth— as if suddenly aggravated. My back teeth were floating, Goldie muttered as he caught their eyes watching his approach. Tell the men to fix their katas. We attack at first light. Zero five thirty. Messner's orders. Branson withdrew her edged bayonet and fixed it to the front of her pulse rifle. The high-tech stuff was good for attacking an enemy at a distance, but the final cleanup was always up close. She would always know the face of her enemy. God have mercy on her soul. "'Tell her what you told me,' Goldie said to Dooley. "'What?' Branson held her gaze on the sergeant. "'Nothing. Just campfire stories that old soldiers tell.' Dooley cut his eyes at Goldie, a silent cursing which he'd vent at some later opportunity. "'I like stories,' Branson said. Dooley shuffled, flushed with mild embarrassment like a child caught speaking out of turn, which Branson found amusing. "'You've already heard this one.' During the American Civil War, a general kept getting these reports about how his men were afraid to be left for wounded on the battlefield. Not just afraid, but absolutely terrified, especially if they had to lay wounded at night. Try as he might, the morale of his troops kept sinking to new lows every day, but no one wanted to talk about it. The only thing any of them would say was that if you fell in combat and you wanted to survive until morning, you should hide your breath so no one knew you were still alive. One night, after an extended engagement with the enemy, the general walked his line. He often did this after battle, you know, to pray for his men and clear his head. He saw some movement on the field between the two warring camps. Alone, Mook, he couldn't tell if it was Yankee or Confederate, walked among the bodies. In the morning, the medics found the fallen bodies decapitated. Sword was a woman with a sword. "'Don't that beat all?' Goldie asked. Branson knew the story. She'd heard it many times before, from Meshner. You and Lieutenant Meshner close? Not really. He just took a shine to me is all, Dooley said sarcastically. Must be your special brand of charm and wit? Yeah, Temper got the best of me again, Dooley said. Back in training camp, I threatened to kick his balls into the following week if he gave me any more bullshit jobs instead of letting me fight. There was this long pause. Thought I was done for either booted out or thrown in the stockade. But he just got this strange grin like a gator smiling at you. Said I was all right. I kind of took him under my wing after that. You know we have to raise these lieutenants, right? Speaking of our esteemed lieutenant and long walks, where is Mush? Goldie asked. Branson's eyes shriveled the grin on the replacement soldier's face. Meshner was still their commanding officer, and Branson's job was to enforce discipline among the men. I'll go look for him. Praise be the blood. The Blessed Sacrament Thanks to the sacrament, a combination of human growth hormone and nanotech, she remained about the physical age of twenty-seven and in peak condition for fighting. Truth be told, the wars had begun to blur together. She hardly noticed when one ended and another began. Tour of duty after tour of duty, her body repaired and rejuvenated. Through the blood we have life, a familiar refrain, never truly aging, only knowing war. She tried not to think about how many test subjects that the church's science division had gone through to perfect the gene therapy, or worse, that they had occasionally remanded those burnouts back to the field, like with Goldie. Fishes! The challenge sounded, with a tremble of nervousness. Meshner's pulse rifle swung toward Branson, who stood in the shadows. "'Fishes!' "'Loaves,' Branson said, in a low voice, calm and focused. She tried to speak with as little venom as possible, but she couldn't always hide the distaste of addressing Meshner. "'What are you doing out here, sir?' "'Just checking the Nils line.' "'I just came from there. Everything's under control.' Branson staggered a little from exhaustion. Her ARM-XS monitoring system pumped stems into her system, steadying her. War is a grave matter, the province of life or death? Meshner paraphrased Sun Tzu. Branson, not impressed by his book-learning, finished the quote. War is like unto a fire. Those who will not put aside weapons are themselves consumed by them. Meshner sucked from a small silver flask. He tipped it an obligatory offer to Branson, who waved it off. Meshner continued drinking. "'Do you know what the curse of war is, sir?' "'The loss of tears, the stress, the loss of so many, the things—' Meshner's thought trailed off. "'Most men drift through life unaware of what they truly are. "'Only another soldier.' knows how hard it is to keep his sanity doing this dirty business. What did you do before all of this, Masya? This is all I do, Lieutenant. I find it easier not to worry about the person I was. She preferred the war's clean and uncomplicated emotions, giving into it, leaving behind idle dreams of family or could-have-beens. Her father was what they called an indigenous leader, a colony planting novice in training, killed in the mission field. After her parents were killed, the church took her in. The church was mother. The church was father. So joining the service of the Order was natural. The church birthed her, and war made her in its image. Because the person you were might not be able to live with the things that the person you've become had to do, or because you don't remember anything before the war. That's the life of a soldier, sir, Branson said. "'Weapons on me! We're moving out!' Meshner shouted. Once again, the men discreetly glanced toward Branson. "'We're expecting some of the nils' best!' Branson slung her weapon to readiness, not meeting the eyes of the men, treading the minefield of leading while appearing to follow. Morale was bad enough without the men wondering who to follow when the shit hit. Technically, Meshner was the ranking officer, but the first lieutenant's role was more administrative.' A liaison ensuring the will of the church was carried out through her military arm. First lieutenants were usually hands-off, opting to work more behind the scenes. They knew the theory of war. Branson and Dooley, they were war. The land itself struggled against them. Mud sucked at their boots as they marched toward the hedgerows that lined the town's perimeter. Flack lit up the starless night from a town more than ten miles away as drones passed overhead. The gloomy woods and endless fog followed them, isolated them. Sound echoed and bounced back, carried oddly by the whims of the hollow. They tromped along the base of a hill that hid them from the road above. Meshner held up his fist. Branson cocked her head at the distinct sound of Biomech marching on cobbled roads. A lone, heathen soldier. Branson kept one eye on Meshner, the other on her squad. This was the dangerous time for the green soldiers— She knew how their hearts stammered so hard they might not be able to catch their breath, trying to maintain their composure as they stared into darkness, trying to distinguish between normal and abnormal shadows, praying that their anxiety for something to happen, anything, just to get the nerve-jangling waiting over with, didn't make them do something stupid. Goldie had wandered too far from the squad before they could do anything about it. Maybe he figured he had a better angle to see their situation from his position. Slinging his rifle over his shoulder, he was climbing up the hill to sneak up on the heathen soldier. Hey, buddy, Goldie said in a mock conspiratorial whisper. The heathen soldier had little opportunity to react before Goldie's kata slipped between his ribs. His body crumpled to the ground. Goldie turned to them, pleased with his actions, but failed to notice what Branson had. This wasn't a lone soldier separated from his unit. He was a lead advance scout, clearing a path for the entire tactical unit, replete with two biomechs supporting the newcomers. The stutter of pulse fire shattered the night, muzzle fire like angry lightning bugs in the darkness. Goldie dove off the road. Get up that hill, or I'll have your balls for breakfast, Dooley yelled above the whine of charges building to fire. Focused light spat out as hot teeth. Dooley roared up the hill, the men quick on his heels. A shot whizzed by Branson and she nearly choked on the accompanying adrenaline rush. She stumbled into Dooley's position and returned fire. You're going to get me killed. Not you, Dooley smirked with a knowing grin. Not today, at least. Dooley's eyes betrayed his attempt at humor. He was reveling in the slaughter. There were no innocents to consider, no waxing on about misguided soldiers. They were all heathen bastards that had to be killed, and be they men, women, or children, they would die if they stood between him and accomplishing his mission. There was something monstrous in Holland that night. One of the replacement soldiers took a bullet right through his mouth, sending his helmet flying and spilling him to the ground. Branson crawled over him to get to a better position. A battle still had to be fought, which left no time to mourn him. She shut down another piece of herself and wondered how much she had left to shut down. One of the heathens broke through their ranks. Branson intercepted him. No matter what the Order preached, there was no honor in battle. Fights were not won by adherence to rules of some imagined gentlemanly engagement. Violence was the most primal language of humanity. Pain was the universal translator. Branson jammed her right index finger through the heathen's eye socket. When he recoiled, she punched him in his genitals with her left. She grabbed her pulse rifle and hammered his head with its butt. The shooting eventually stopped. MK-241 incendiary attacks left scorched trees. Holes pockmarked the earth. Branson prayed that they hadn't wasted these men on a bloody joyride. All Branson wanted was to reach a command post, get a shower, and feel human again. Dismissed, she went to check on Dooley. "'How's the leg?' Branson asked. "'Just practicing to be the dummy,' Dooley winced. He had caught a ricochet, but Branson knew he wasn't going anywhere. "'It's all such a waste. I'll be patched up and ready to go again before chow time. All for the church to claim another bit of real estate to justify the use of the sword to fulfill God's kingdom.' Careful. Questions like that might make some think you're losing your beliefs. The only belief of mine anyone needs to worry about is my belief in following orders. I'm just... tired. Yeah, we all get tired like that sometimes. Goldie huddled over a body hidden in the shadows. Branson tried to make as much noise as possible when she walked toward him in order to avoid spooking him, but Goldie whirled at her approach, weapon-ready. Branson calmly raised her hands. A little jumpy? I guess, ma'am. Got anything good, kid? Good? Goldie demurred, not quite hiding his guilt at being caught. Souvenirs. I found this. Goldie pointed to a fallen heathen soldier. He's the seventh body I found like that, most nowhere near any shelling. Maybe someone's collecting more... exotic souvenirs. Goldie's face suddenly seemed too young to know the taste of war. How do you do it, ma'am? Do what? Live with the constant fear. How could she explain to him that each day was a struggle to believe that life was worth living, that people were supposed to be created in God's image, that there was a point to any of this? There's no fear on stage, Branson said. Goldie shook his head, not understanding. It's like an actor's performance anxiety. Our hollow training, all that rehearsal, takes over. Resign yourself to your own death and you can do anything, especially live. Branson watched her breath curl languidly in front of her. The cold air stabbed at her lungs like a swarm of needles. The treacherous man-made forests had been planted specifically as a defensive barrier, The unrelenting shelling reduced her squad to shadows backlit by burning trees. She could barely feel her fingers, despite the flames erupting in the woods. A miserable downpour, closer to sleet than rain, left thick, slimy mud that slowed their every movement. The thick fog rolled in, damp and cold, leaving the men disoriented, isolating them in their own private Ragnarok's. The thought of roads seemed like bedtime stories told to give hope to the weary soldiers. The hours might as well have been days. Branson heard the devil's whistle, the whine which made every soldier's blood run cold. Drones gave little warning before their attack. If you hear the shells, you'll be okay, she taught. She hugged the ground, certain that this time a missile had come for her head. The earth trembled beneath her, spitting dirt in its death throes. Then the shelling stopped. War held her breath. After being fired upon all night, the silences proved just as eerie. The earth stilled. Gold flames illuminated the trees. Like prairie dogs, the medics popped their heads up to scan the terrain. They scurried out of their foxholes to tend to the wounded. With diabolical timing, the shelling started again. Bleeding limbs, shorn to their rent bones, lay scattered on the field, bereft of bodies to connect to. The smell of burnt flesh filled the air. Branson feared for her men. She eyed every fog-dulled silhouette with suspicion, not trusting any sound. At a branch snap, she whirled, finger on trigger, ready to fire until she recognized the man's helmet. She breathed a sigh of relief, She'd just wanted to get them on the line and through a couple of days of combat. Then they'd be fine. They were good men, only green. The cries of the wounded filled her ears. But even without translation PSI ops training, she understood prayers when she heard them. When the fog lifted, decapitated soldiers littered the field. Bodies strewn about, half-buried in the mud. Blood from friend and foe alike seeped into the soil— Replacement troops puked their guts out at the sight of mangled corpses. Branson inspected the bodies. A hint of suspicion tickled the back of her mind. Many of the wounds should have left some of the men hurt, but not dead. Goldie stumbled about, sure that the last round of shelling was indeed the last. He was young and inexperienced, and oblivious to the fact that the heathens had all night to play in the woods with their special brand of toys— like sniper rifles. Stay down, kid. Keep your head down, Dula yelled. The blast tore into Goldie's throat. His hands clasped his neck, a thin trickle of blood escaping through his fingers even as the shot cauterized itself. Men returned fire in the direction of the shot. A medic scrambled toward Goldie, not seeing the booby trap wire. The explosive device threw his body into the air like a discarded toy. The cloud of dust and smoke made it difficult to breathe. The medic struggled to stand up on just one leg. Dooley was the first to reach the still-thrashing Goldie. Branson dashed over to help hold him down as best she could. The medic was already dressing his own leg. Medic! Dooley yelled. He fumbled about his jacket for his emergency aid kit. I'm sorry, Sarge. I goofed up. I goofed up. Goldie spat through his own blood. It's not that bad. Hang on, kid. Dooley slapped a bandage over it and injected him with morphine. Tell me about Valhalla, Goldie said in his treble rasp. It's a huge palace, kid. Big enough for all the warriors. All you do is drink, eat, and tell each other lies about your greatest battles. It sounds great, Sarge. I'm tired of fighting. Goldie's head fell to the side in a relaxed beatitude. A signature dull thrum in the ear signaled everyone to scramble for cover. Branson dove into a nearby hole. Its occupant whirled to face her. Each of them brought their weapons to bear. Lieutenant? Meshner said in a flat voice, not unlike a man sitting down for afternoon tea. Lieutenant? Branson responded, matching his nonchalance. She lowered her weapon, but only as Meshner dropped his. We're on hollowed ground. We are, sir? Branson ducked down at the renewed drumming and then fired in its direction, tilled with the blood of our enemies. A lot of our blood, too, sir. War has always been with us. She whispers to me. I try to silence her, but she continues every night. I hear her voice and the groans left in her wake, and she only stops when the earth streams with blood. She whispers to me. She told me all about you, her cupbearer, always thirsty. I thought you were the one. It's in our nature. It's why we fight. Meshner raised the kata, the same spirit in which Cain killed Abel. Where we walk, the earth groans with blood in our wake. Something's not right with you, Meshner. War did strange things to people. Sometimes her whisper simply drove men mad— A glint of light from Meshner's side drew Branson's attention. Anil's dress her. her stomach tightened like a clenched fist. We're both orphans of a sort, no family, no name. Meshner drained his flask, upturning it completely to capture the last drops. I wasn't always mush, the paper pusher. I had skill on the battlefield once. Then one day the war was done and I found myself back home. The white picket fence, the possibility of a normal life, was like ashes in my mouth. I had no interest in family, in friends, in any kind of social mask. What I did on the combat field was what I was. Nothing else mattered. There's blood on our hands. Praise be the blood. I know. Blood that rivers couldn't wash away, Meshner said. So all we're left with are our dreams. Mine are of you. It's always you. The two of us could— Branson shook her head, her eyes wanting no part of whatever it was he offered. She had the feeling that he really wasn't speaking to her at all. She wondered if Meshner had been a burnout like Goldie. Perhaps before conversion, he, too, had struggled against an inner darkness, one that clawed at him just under his surface. You have many guises, Meshner said. You die, you come back. But I can see you now. Cursed to fight and suffer over and over again, like the others. We have sown nothing but death and blood. Praise be the blood, she said. Branson had been to the cliff's edge of madness herself. She knew how tempting it could be to give in and dive off into the waiting embrace of the abyss. So many nights she thought she was losing that tenuous grip on her humanity. Every night, it seemed harder and harder to choose to remain human. "'As you have sown, so shall you reap, for now is the time for harvest,' Meshner raised his kata. Too many times she had laid awake imagining someone trying to butcher her. Her rifle blocked his kata thrust, throwing him off balance. In close quarters, the rifle was otherwise useless, his strength superior to hers. He continued to drive the blade down. Fueled by desperation, she found the strength for survival. Up close, the only sounds were their gasps as they struggled. He grunted when her elbow smashed into the bridge of his nose. They were reduced to animals as he grabbed her head and drove his knee into her throat. He tried to get her in the stranglehold. She bit through his hand, then butted him in the jaw. She jumped to the side and drew him backwards. She caught him by the head, her fingers gouging his eyes. She pulled his head backward. Planting her foot into the back of his knee, she threw her weight into him as he fell. He rolled over, freeing himself of her. His hand fished about, retrieving his kata. He stood up slowly, his head above the foxhole. A mad, feral smile glinted in the wan light. His blood stained his teeth. His mouth twitched as if itching for a drink. His head exploded. Shrapnel of bone, brain matter, and blood sprayed her. The sniper round, more missile than bullet, had shattered his skull. His body dropped to its knees and he fell forward. Womp. 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 She recognized the sound as well, as she knew the sound of her own heartbeat. The heathens were launching mortar bombs their way. An explosion, pure concussive force, smacked them like the backhand of God and showered them in a storm of dirt, dust, and stone. All sound became muffled, taking on a looped, distorted quality. The woods erupted in a tumult of fire. A thick haze of smoke rose against the backdrop of flame. Men advanced like ghosts along the horizon. Branson scrambled for cover. Something hot burned through her three times. Her body betrayed her, and her legs began to give out. Blood splayed across fingers she no longer felt. She fell alongside Meshner, burying her face under him to hide her breath. Not every monster was meant for redemption. Praise. Be the
2: blood. There you go. Maurice, thank you so much. Thank you indeed, sir. It it is an honour to have you on board there. And Stephanie, thank you. You know, (laughs) keep doing some plays and some weird churches. That's great. So, (laughs) I Are you there? It's Amy H. Sturgis looking back at genre history. IMS!
3: Hello, my friends. It is time for another look back into genre history. The Hugo nominees have been announced. And I want to say congratulations to everyone whose work was nominated. I hope you will forgive me a moment's personal note here, but you may recall that I invited everyone to go to Apex Magazine for the August 2017 issue. That's issue number 99 online and available for free. I was very fortunate and privileged to be invited to be the guest editor for Apex's double issue focused on a celebration of indigenous American fantasists. And that project was and is very, very near and dear to my heart. And I just want to say how thrilled I am that the story Welcome to Your Authentic Indian Experience, trademark, by Rebecca Roanhorse is now both a Hugo nominee for Best Short Story and a Nebula nominee for Best Short Story. And Rebecca herself is nominated for the Campbell Award for Best New Writer. I could not be happier. And so I want to congratulate Rebecca publicly. Yay! And invite all of you to read Rebecca Roanhorse's story and all of the rest of the stories. In the celebration of Indigenous American Fantasists issue of Apex Magazine. Again, that is August 2017, issue 99, and it is online for free. And congratulations again, Rebecca, and thank you for letting me make that uh, personal note here at the beginning of this segment. So, what I wanted to talk to you today... About is the fact that not only are the 2018 Hugo Awards forthcoming, but the Retro Hugo Awards have been announced, the nominees, that is. You may recall that the Retro Hugo Awards are given for years in which Hugos were not previously given. The Hugo Awards were first presented in 1953. Since 1993, Worldcon committees have had the option of awarding Retro Hugo Awards for past Worldcon years, that is, years from 1939 forward, where they had not been presented, a multiple of 25 years prior to the contemporary convention. And so, This year, 2018, is 75 years since 1943, and The Retro Hugos will be given at Worldcon 76 in San Jose. What I'd like to do is talk to you today particularly about the novels that have been nominated for Best Novel for 1943. It's an interesting mix. Okay, so let's dive in. First up, Beyond This Horizon by Anson MacDonald, which was originally published in two parts, serial form in Astounding Science Fiction in April and May 1942. You may be asking yourself, Anson MacDonald? Well, Anson MacDonald was one of the pseudonyms for Robert Heinlein. Yes, one of the big three of the Golden Age, along with Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke. It's worth pointing out that Heinlein's very first science fiction story was only published in 39, so he is still new to the game at this point. You can already see some classic Heinleinian themes, though, in the novel. He deals with reincarnation, immortality of the soul, telepathy. The main character, Hamilton Felix, was produced by generations of genetic engineering, and he's kind of a, of a Superman-Ubermensch kind of character. And it's Heinlein, so there's political revolution. Does it matter if it's utopia or not? Here is the Goodreads description. Utopia has been achieved. For centuries, disease, hunger, poverty, and war have been things found only in the history tapes. And applied genetics has given men and women the bodies of athletes in a lifespan of over a century. They should all have been very happy. But Hamilton Felix is bored, and he is the culmination of a star line, each of his last 30 ancestors chosen for superior genes. Hamilton is, as far as genetics can produce one, the ultimate man. And this ultimate man can see no reason why the human race should survive, and has no intention of continuing the pointless comedy. However, Hamilton's life is about to become less boring. A secret cabal of revolutionaries who find utopia not just boring, but desperately in need of leaders who know just what needs to be done, all caps, are planning to revolt and put themselves in charge. Knowing of Hamilton's disenchantment with the modern world, they have recruited him to join their glorious revolution. Big mistake. The revolutionaries are about to find out that recruiting a superman was definitely not a good idea. This has plenty of action, and of course Heinlein being Heinlein, or early Heinlein being early Heinlein, although he's not being Heinlein, he's being Anson MacDonald. And there you go. Next up, we have an author also incredibly well-known, but instead of taking his first forays into science fiction, he's already well-established. That is UK author Olaf Stapledon. By this point, he has already written Last and First Men in 1930 and Star Maker in 1937, works that justly made him science fiction legend. And like those earlier novels, this novel up for the Retro Hugo Award, Darkness and the Light, is also one of these big picture, wide swaths of future history kind of stories. I saw one review on Goodreads that I think quite aptly describes it. Imagine picking up Tolkien for the first time, but instead of reading The Lord of the Rings, you're reading The Silmarillion. That's your first taste of Tolkien. The scale of that is so vast that the entire epic Lord of the Rings is basically only a footnote. That sort of puts it in perspective. That's the kind of big picture scale that Stapleton is working from. And here, writing during the World War, he gives us two alternate Futures, One of which becomes a utopia, and we achieve enlightenment. The other one, not so much, and we're devoured by rats. The turning point, the tipping point, the place at which we could go either way in our future development is not actually the outcome of World War II. It's the failure or success of a future Tibetan renaissance. And whether that Tibetan renaissance will influence the thinking, the long-term goals, the military strategy of the Russian and Chinese empires that threaten it. So one of the futures involves Chinese imperialism. And that's the one where if you follow it to its end result, it ends up with a degenerated and finally extinct human race. Thanks to speedily evolving rats. The other ends up with the overthrow of empires and the creation of a worldwide socialist utopia. You don't read this book for characters, you don't read this book for intimate human slices of life, but if you want to see a portrait of the human future, actually two portraits of potential human futures, on a vast scale, with deep world-building. This is quite a feat. Okay, next we have up Kurt Seidmack, German author, screenwriter, director, based in Hollywood, and a story you may know even if you haven't read it, and that is Donovan's Brain, originally published in Black Mask, in three parts from September through November 1942. And this story has been something of a science fiction gift that keeps on giving. It is the story of Dr. Patrick Corey, scientist, who is unable to save the life of tycoon W.H. Donovan after a plane crash, and so he keeps Donovan's brain alive through an illegal experiment. This is the the brain-in-the-tank trope. This is, in fact, one of the source texts of that trope. Donovan, while alive and in his body, was a megalomaniac, and now that he is a disembodied brain, he's even worse. He takes over his doctor, the scientist keeping his brain alive, and things get worse from there. Now... I said that you may know the story even if you haven't read it. That's because it has been adapted many times, first time by the author himself, as the movie The Lady and the Monster from 1944. That was remade as Donovan's Brain in 1953, and a new adaptation came along in 1962 simply called The Brain. Donovan's Brain was also parodied in the 1983 movie, The Man with Two Brains. There have also been radio adaptations of the story, uh, perhaps most famously from the series Suspense, starring Orson Welles in 1944. That was later released on LP in 1982, and that won the Grammy Award for Best Spoken Word Album. By the way, you can now find that episode of Suspense online for free download or free streaming, and it's very much worth listening to. Others have written about the influence of this story, including Stephen King, and it also finds its way into It by Stephen King. So, in a sense, Donovan's Brain is a work that has saturated public consciousness. Seed Mack later revisited the idea. He wrote a sequel in 1968 called Hauser's Memory and a final sequel work in 1991 entitled Gabriel's Body. See, I told you it was the gift that keeps giving. One of the things that fascinates and delights me about these books these novels that are nominated for the Retro Hugo for 1943s, they're all doing rather different things. I say all of them here, but I realize that I've only spoken about three so far. I have three more to go. So I think that's probably another segment. So for now, I will just repeat the first three nominees. We have the genetically engineered Superman Action Adventure of Beyond This Horizon by Anson MacDonald, otherwise known as Heinlein. We have the far-flung future Darkness and the Light by Olaf Stapleton, which in part takes humanity down the road to apocalypse and also shows a road to enlightenment and utopia. Two different paths. And lastly, the gothic, darkly comic Thriller Donovan's Brain by Kurt Siedmack. And we have three more nominees for Best Novel for the Retro Hugos for 1943. And I will talk about those when we meet again with another look back into genre history. I look forward to joining you soon. Thank you.
2: Oh, Amy, thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, Amy mentioned... That story, welcome to your authentic Indian experience. I've put a link onto that story so you can go and read it, you know what I mean? So just come to the front of the website there or wherever you get the show from. There's a link there to, just so you can go and read that from Apex, you know what I mean? That's, I'm proud as punch as Amy, so that's fantastic. So that is today's show. I hope you enjoyed it, you know what I mean? And I kind of hope you can come over and you know and, and support one period. That would be just a fine a little kind of stamp, march, crawl, drag to 500 supporters is our goal this year. It would be amazing. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders
1: Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Yeah, much? I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning into your transmissions. I'm running, waiting to be found, and I'm building rockets, I'm pointing them to the moon. But the work is going slowly; it won't get to you anytime soon. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I wanna talk to you. Time I get my say, I might already be on to you and on my way, but you're so far from here, and at best, i move moving slow. So I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I wanna talk to you. I wanna talk.